Now we'll start into 1 Peter chapter 4. This is kind of the summation of all that's been going on. This is um, what I'm titling Suffering Well. Suffering Well. Um, If you read the newsletter that we sent out this week, if you read my little article I wrote on there, I quoted um, part of the Declaration of Independence. Now you and I do not realize how blessed we are in the history of all the world to have been born in this time, to be born in this country. We live in the most affluent, powerful, financially stable country that has ever existed. There's been more wealth in this country, and you and I live in a different world than most people in centuries past have ever lived in. All these new inventions that we have in the last hundred years have gone to make our lives easier and better. In fact, the, the thing inside of us pushes against anything that might cause pain and suffering. And so when I sent out that article and I wrote in there that uh, what this country was, the ideal it was founded was freedom to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you notice what wasn't in there was death, sacrifice, service, and suffering. And what I'm calling you today, what I want you to see, as the Christian, this is going to be the overall theme, and I think all of Peter summed up in verse 19, which we'll get to in a minute. All of 1 Peter, what he's trying to tell the dispersion, these churches in Turkey and Asia Minor, what he's trying to tell them is to embrace suffering. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is Peter tells them he's telling us the same thing, that you and I, as a Christ follower, are to embrace suffering, not to avoid it. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But suffering is the way of the Christian. So let me ask you, have you ever felt like an outcast or a stranger? Or like you don't belong? Maybe you were the last person picked for dodgeball? Maybe you weren't picked at all. Maybe you struggle to find your spot in your friends group, in your school, in your work environment, even in your home. And I want to tell you this morning, you have hope here today. Um, I used to put my kids to bed, and one of the things that I would do when I, when I would read to them at night is um, I used to get this book called Jesus Freaks. Now, I originally bought it because the book really looked really cool, and the pages looked like they were torn. And it was just DC, DC Talks version. of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have you ever read this book? It's really not the most uplifting book you'll ever read because what it shares in the pages are stories of people, martyrs, who would not recant and renounce Christ as their Savior to the point of death. And yes, they have... um, the apostles in there. They have the early church fathers in there. But they have recent stories. And at the time of the writing, even up through the 90s, and they had teenagers in communist countries. And I'm looking back, I'm thinking, maybe I shouldn't have been reading these bedtime stories to my kids. But what I wanted them to see is that Jesus is worth living for, even if it costs you everything even if it costs you your life, even if it costs you the comforts of this world. And this is what Peter is getting at. Now, before we get there, I want to share with you, I want to set the tone here 
with what the early church was going through, what these churches of the dispersion in Asia Minor, what, what they were going through in the Roman Empire. So I want to read to you some research that I did about these people because we need to connect with the original um, intended audience. Who was Peter writing to? And let me just read this to you and put yourself 2,000 years ago. Empire-wide wide torture and execution of Christians occurred primarily during the 3rd and early 4th centuries, especially under emperors Decius, Valerian, and Diocletian. In preceding centuries, scattered martyrdoms occurred in places like Smyrna, Lyon, Carthage, and Rome. Testimony of these can be found among early Christian writers like Lactanaceus, Eusebius, Cyprian, and in various acts of the martyrs. However, persecutions in the first two centuries of the church were typically, typically localized and often more subtle and demanding seizure of property, imprisonment, exile, or enslavement. So what we're seeing here is the early church, and we could easily make the case that in the reign of Nero, that he was persecuting Christians, tarring, feathering them, sticking them on, impaling them on large poles, and lighting them as lampposts into the city. But what we're seeing generally what was happening is it was localized in each Roman province, in each city, in each area. And what they would do is they would take your property, they could imprison you, they could exile you like they did to the Apostle John because they couldn't kill him and they sent him to the island of Patmos. Or they could enslave you. Correspondence between Pliny the Younger and Emperor Trajan offers an early imperial perspective. As governor of Bithynia, Pliny requested Trajan's advice concerning judicial punishment of Christians. He was wanting to know, what do we do with these Christians? Pliny had already tortured and executed some Christians and was deliberating about whether to punish all Christians the same way and about how aggressively to pursue them. Trajan affirmed Pliny's procedures but stated he needed not actively seek Christians. Rather, Denial of Christ and participation in pagan worship were enough to acquit someone. So what they would say is, if you just submit to our culture, you can even worship Jesus, but as long as you just worship our gods too, we will acquit you. We won't take your property. We won't exile you. We won't enslave you. Denial of Christ and participation in pagan worship were enough to acquit someone. Anonymous accusations should not be allowed, and pardons should be granted for recantation. And Trajan's position explains most imperial policy prior to Decius's persecution. This is the norm for these people that Peter was writing to. Some emperors actively opposed Christianity during the New Testament period. Now, this is huge. Claudius expelled Jews from Rome for disturbances at the instigation of Chestus which likely was an attempt to suppress fighting within the Jewish community over allegiance to Christ. In AD 64, Nero blamed Christians for setting fire to Rome. Though contemporaries believe Nero started the blaze, Nero executed Christians on burning crosses and in other horrible ways. Both Peter and Paul were remembered to have been martyred in this period. Nevertheless, apparently Nero's orders did not extend beyond the city itself, and local residents reportedly felt some pity for Christians. Domitian, who was around 81 to 96 AD, he persecuted both Jews and Christians, especially due to Jewish opposition to special taxation on religion. 
And here's where it starts to get more applicable for you and I. Pagan authors, they provide us insight into Roman opposition to Christianity. You may have heard these stories, but I want to share with them with you again. Christian refusal to worship pagan gods was believed to incite anger among the gods, thus endangering the city and the empire. This led to charges of, get this, atheism and hatred of humanity. In other words, if you don't worship the gods that we worship, you're going to make our gods angry, and because our, our gods rule our city, you're going to make our city at the will of the gods, which isn't good for us. So much so that if they didn't worship them, they thought they didn't believe in God, so they called them atheists. Some early writers even think and called them, they thought they were vampires of sorts, because they talked about eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. Christian abandonment of pagan religion was particularly noticeable in a society where pagan worship was woven throughout the Roman festivals, family celebrations, guilds, and fraternal activities, sports, theater, and other social events. In other words, religion for these ancient people was weaved throughout all of life. Imperial cult, cult worship displayed allegiance to Rome, and thus denial of sacrifice might signal revolutionary motives. You don't worship our gods, then you don't stand for our city. In addition, many secretive Christian uh, acts were deemed suspicious. With the Christian celebration of, get this, the love feast, which was what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper, so as you can see, being a Christian in first two centuries meant that you were at odds with the culture. Sound familiar? Like for you and I, if someone were to ask us, what is different about you than the culture, what would we say? In other words... If someone were to judge who Jesus was based on your lifestyle, what would be their answer? Your neighbors, if they judged your lifestyle, who would they say Jesus is? How about your coworkers? How about the people on your kids' ball teams? Now, I'm not saying I do this perfectly. But I think it's a question, a spiritual diagnosis to understand where our allegiance truly lies. And are we willing to go that far that people would say there's something different about you and you're different than the culture? One of the devotions with our kids this week was about being salt. Jesus says we are the salt of the earth. And if you are into barbecuing at all or creating your own food, you know how important salt is. And it's not just the iodized canned salt, right? You need to get the sea salt or the salt that you crush because it just adds more flavor. And so when you're taking salt and you're putting it on a steak, what you're doing is you're drawing out the flavors of the steak. You're seasoning the steak. And Jesus' intent when he was saying, we're the salt of the earth, is saying we add seasoning to this world, that we're not to be of the world, but we're in the world. And so often, American Christianity looks no different than American paganism. Yet these first century Christians knew that they were at odds to the point of being exiled, enslaved, seizure of property, even to the point of death. 
This is where we find ourselves this morning. Are you with me? Let's get into the text, and we'll slowly start working through these eight verses. Let's go to 1 Peter 4.12. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Pause. The first point for this morning is don't be surprised. But before we get there, I want to say the first word that Peter uses is the word beloved. Husbands, do you ever look at your wife and just smile at her and gaze? Like if you were a cartoon, you'd have hearts in your eyes and you just say, you're my beloved. You ever do that? You should do that. You should do that tonight. When you tuck the kids in the bed and you go home, you should look at your spouse and, and you should say, you're my beloved. Because that word is somewhat foreign to us. We say babe and honey and sweetheart um, and maybe some other names like schmoopy. Anybody use schmoopy? No? And as I was studying for this, I, I couldn't get past that first word, beloved, because what Peter's doing is he's getting ready to tell them about how they're going to suffer for Christ and why they need to suffer for Christ and why they need to suffer well for Christ and what that means to suffer for Christ. But before he gets there, he says, beloved. And it's easy to look past this word and get into the rest of the text and get point one, two, three, and four. But before we get to point one, which is don't be surprised, is he says beloved. And I want to share what this word actually means. In the Greek, there are a few different words for the word love. There's eros, which is more sexual in nature. It's where we get the word erotic. There is the word phileo, which is where we get the word brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And then there's this other word in the Greek language called agape. And agape is a special, different kind of love, something set apart. And this is the root word of the word beloved, agape. It means a person who is dearly loved and cherished, sometimes preferred above all others. So when you say this to your loved one, you say, you're my beloved, what you're saying is you are more special than anyone else in my life. And this is what God is saying about you. It's what Peter is reminding these Gentile believers in the dispersion that you are beloved. Why is this important? Because this is what God had referenced to Jesus. I want to take you through a few passages. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. I don't have it on the slides. You'll have to do some work on your own this morning. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is in his ministry. It's the Sabbath. He's healing someone on the Sabbath, which is against the Jewish law because the Jewish law states that you rest, even if it means healing and helping someone. And so Jesus was always pushing the envelope, but he wasn't pushing the envelope for the sake of pushing the envelope. He was pushing it because he wanted to get people back to the heart of God, which is loving him and loving people. And so he heals this man with a withered hand, and he actually didn't even touch him. He just says, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand is normal. And they get so hot and so upset that they're, they're trying to conspire. How can we take him out? And verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, pulled himself from the situation, and many followed him. 
And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here's where we get this beloved. Reading, written hundreds of years before Christ came, but the words of Christ nonetheless. God says this about Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. This is God's affection towards his son Jesus. Now, does that verse sound familiar? Do you remember when Jesus came to the Apostle John and he needed to be baptized, not because there was sin in his life, but to fulfill all righteousness. And John, John was really hesitant, and he finally says, okay, I'll do it. And after he was baptized and came out of the water, do you remember what happened? The skies opened up. You can find this in Matthew chapter 3. And a dove came down, and what did the Spirit of God, the voice of God say? This is my son, my beloved, with who... I am well pleased. And then we can change over to Matthew chapter 17. And we'll see this used again. Jesus is with his disciples, and he just gets done telling them the cost of following him. And he says, come with me. And he takes Peter and James and John, and he leads them up a high mountain. And what happens on this mountain is he was changed. He was transfigured. He was glowing such a bright light that they couldn't really see very well. But there was Moses and Elijah and there was Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love this part because Peter, although his intense tent is usually good, he usually has foot and mouth syndrome. And he's just so excited, right? I can relate with him. Can you relate with him sometimes? And it says, as he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said this, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What I'm trying to, the picture I'm trying to paint is that God has such affection for his son that he calls him his beloved at his baptism, commissioning for his ministry. He says it in Isaiah, foreshadowing the promise to come in the midst of his ministry. And as he's transfigured, ready to head to the cross, this is my beloved. And I'm here this morning to tell you, this is how God sees you. You are set apart for him. You are cherished. You are precious in his sight. Not because of any work you could do, but because of the work of Christ. But you are his beloved. And this is so important because your identity is at stake. And we live in a world of idol worship. We live in a world of idolatry. And we may not have carved statues, but we worship many things. Family. Sports, sleep, work, success, friendship, acceptance. The list is really long, isn't it? Your identity is not in who you even think you are, what someone would say who you are. Your identity is in Christ, and he calls you beloved. 
Anybody in here, the crazy person in the family, don't raise your hand. Here's the thing about following Jesus. Sometimes he asks you to do crazy things. And those crazy things that you do are what sets you apart from the world that doesn't understand why you would get up early on a Sunday morning and gather for worship. The world looks at you and says, why would you give 10% or more of your income to the church? Why would you support missionaries and send them across the world or even locally in your own community? Why would you do these things? Why would you collect backpacks and crayons and papers for kids you don't know, the kids that aren't yours? Why would you do these things? Why would you not have a mouth that is filthy at work? Why don't you watch the shows everyone else watches? What's different about you? You're crazy. Well, I'm here to tell you you're in good company because you know who else his own family thought was crazy? Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is healing and he's just on the go and he's running and he's running and he's running and he goes and he leaves and of course the crowd follows him and he's hungry. He missed dinner time. He needed a Snickers. But we know that Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And so his family comes, his mother and his brothers and sisters. And they come, in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, says they came to seize him. This is the same language as if you got pulled over because you were speeding down Highway 50 and you had a, a few speeding tickets that you didn't pay. The cops would take you out of the car and they would seize you. And they would put you in the back of the car and they would take you down to county and they would book you. They were wanting to seize Jesus because it says that they thought he was out of his mind. You see, living for Jesus and suffering well means that people might think that you're crazy. People might think that you're different, but here is the key. You are beloved no matter what anyone says. Because of Jesus. You are in Christ. Now I have a few verses I'm going to run through these. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, guess what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's good news. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. The sins that you were living in this week, <laughs> in Christ, with a heart that turns to him, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you belong to Christ, he is in you, and you are in him. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that verse. 
So to set the base here, you are beloved in Christ Jesus. Now we get to point one. Do not be surprised. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised when persecutions and mockings and scorning and shame come your way because of Jesus. Now we have to get this right. It's because of Jesus that people might call you names, might treat you differently. They might call you crazy. But we shouldn't be surprised um, Christine had a big birthday this past March, and I tried to go all out, and I tried to plan a, a party for her without her knowing it. And so I messaged some people and family, and there, our house was just packed full of people, and I took her out to eat, and so that was my key to take her out to eat so that when we came back, there would be a lot of people at our house, and she wouldn't know it, and I was like, oh, I forgot something, we got to go back to the house except for when you're driving on Highway A with a blindfold on, because I was, wouldn't tell her, um, you have a tendency to get a little car sick. So the blindfold had to come off. And then um, a neighbor who we're caring for, um, who's kind of um, a meddler, which we'll get to in a minute, um, texted my wife and said, why are there so many cars at your house? But I'm telling you, when we pulled up, Everyone was outside, and the lawn was full of people. She was surprised. When it was my 30th birthday party, um, Christine got me good, and she had me make the signs for a work, work party, and she just thought that was the funniest thing. that my, I made my own signs for my own surprise birthday party. <laughs> it was good. Some people like surprises. Most people don't. When it comes to suffering for Christ, do not be surprised when the fiery trials come. In fact, don't push them away, embrace them. Now, there's, we've got to have a separation here because there are, there's a difference between suffering in the world and suffering for Jesus. The word fiery trials here, has, it literally means fire and burning. Um, Proverbs 27, 21, which I think is the essence of this verse, says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. The fire is the means of refining and testing silver and gold. The, fire, the fiery trials in our lives are God's his means in removing the things in our lives so that he is the only thing that we need. And you've got to fight and push against every fiber in your being that wants to resist that. Because when God puts a fiery trial in your life, it's because he loves you. Because he wants a better life for you. It's because there's things he's trying to remove because he's trying to make you into the likeness of his son who is perfect. And the good news is that even as you're in the midst of that, he sees you as Jesus. We shouldn't think this is something strange either. So not be surprised and not that this is something strange. What's interesting is this is the same word used in Acts chapter 17, 17 when Paul was in Athens. Now Athens was, it was the um, intellectual city of the time. Epicureans and Stoics and religious people and all kinds of sorts. And so Paul went there to the Jewish people first and then he went to, um, to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And he was engaging with them and what, when he told them about who Jesus was, and he displayed the gospel for them, do you know what they said? Some of them rejected it. Some of them were curious. 
And they said, what is this new and strange teaching? Would you come back? We'd like to hear more. This is the same word. Don't consider it It's strange that God would do this to you, but this is God's will for your life, that he would walk with you and that he would work in your life and that he would remove things that are hindering you from seeing him for who he is. A life of faith in Christ is a powerful witness to a watching world. A life of faith in Christ is a powerful witness to a watching world. So don't be surprised when fiery trials come because of your faith in Jesus. Spiritual diagnosis. Are we walking through any fiery trials now because of our faith in Christ? Question we should be asking, and if the answer is no, why? Why? Okay, point two. First is do not be surprised. The second is rejoice. Let's go to verse 13. So after we aren't surprised that we're going through fiery trials and something strange is happening, verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When the trials come, we are to rejoice. Sound backwards to you? Sound difficult and challenging to you? It is, but remember, the Spirit of God lives in you, empowering you to understand that suffering for Christ is God's means, his good means of grace upon your life, that he's doing something in you. In fact, we could rewrite that sentence and write it this way, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, rejoice. Rejoice. Many Christians throughout history, and even today, have faced many hardships and suffering on Christ's behalf. We don't have to look far. We can look into communist nations. Romania, not too many years ago, was fully communist, and they were smuggling Bibles in there through Voice of the Martyrs, through Richard Wormbrand, through one of our pastors in Calvary, in Troy, Missouri. In fact, there's a missions pastor at um, Harvester First Baptist Church in St. Charles, who is Romanian, George Pordia. His dad was a guard on the border in Romania. And I think that his dad was a guard keeping people from coming in while our pastor in Troy was smuggling Bibles in at that very gate. Small world, isn't it? Or what about these Christians in communist China who are thrown in prison for having a page of the Bible? See, persecutions for following Christ may cost you your life. They probably won't in this country, but God is still at work in your life. And when those fiery trials come, we are to rejoice because it means that God is doing something in us, that he hasn't forgotten us, that he's with us. The apostles did the same thing in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember this? They were out preaching the name of Jesus because they had seen the resurrected Christ. The Spirit had descended on them. Acts 2 was this great awakening where the Pentecost fell and the Spirit fell, and they spoke in these languages, and people came to accept Christ as their Savior. He is the Messiah, and the church blew up, and the church started all over. Well, just a couple chapters later, Peter and the apostles are out preaching in the synagogues, preaching to people, This Jesus you crucified, he is the Messiah. And guess what? He is raised to life and he ascended to heaven and he is God's son. 
And they still didn't like this, and so they would persecute them. And they threw them in prison. And Acts chapter 5 tells us that as they were released from prison, we see the apostles doing what we should be doing when fiery trials come upon us. So after they took advice from Gamaliel about just let these men go, because if it is God, you're not going to stop it. And so they took his, took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, listen to this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name, for the name of Jesus. They counted it, they rejoiced and counted it as honor to carry the name of Christ. And it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And they did this till they finally took their lives. But you know what? If it was just people throughout the centuries, people in today's day and age, or even the apostles, that's good. But we have a God who also did it for us. Jesus himself suffered and was mocked and beaten and tortured and murdered on a cross. In fact, he told us that we would be hated. Do you remember these verses? Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. What we see in Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus is laying it out there because here's the thing about the Christian life. It was never intended to be easy. It was never intended to be a guarantee of a good life in this world. Certain pastors, and I use that term loosely, certain speakers of certain big organizations will write books saying every day of Friday. Your best life now. Can I tell you something? That is 100% anti-Jesus Christ. That is 100% against everything that Jesus stood for. Jesus came not to be served, although he had every right to be served. He came to serve. The creator of all eternity, of all things, who holds everything together, even in this moment, was the one who came and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed our feet, served us in his death. Our best life is not in this world. Our best life is the one to come, which is what Peter is going to get at. And so Jesus was preparing his disciples to follow him, meant sacrifice to follow him, and your life may not be easy street. And I've shared this story before because it was so powerful. Um, the president of World Vision was on a mission trip to Africa. And he saw this missionary come into town. He says, oh, it's so good to see you. I'm going to pray for you. And he says, no, 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 don't pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. He says, what do you mean you're going to pray for me? And he told him the story about how he was in a Muslim country, and they had, if you've ever been to a third world country, things aren't up to OSHA standards. You do whatever you can to survive, and these power lines were coming right through town. And because he was preaching in the name of Jesus, just like Peter was, they were going to throw him in prison and then kill him the next day. And the way they were going to kill him was putting him in a seat in the middle of town, invite the town to come around, pull the electrical lines off the posts, 
and make a connection. And they did this one day, and guess right, as they were getting ready to, to electrocute him for his faith and preaching in Christ, power shut off. Well, he did this a couple more times, and they said, we don't know what's going on, but you can leave. Just don't preach in the name of Jesus. And you know what he did? As he's going out of town, he's preaching in the name of Jesus. He says, don't pray for me. I'm praying for you because you live in America and you don't need prayer. You don't need to rely on Jesus every single day because you have everything. That is seared onto my heart. Christian life, most of the time, is at odds with the American dream. <laughs> I know that's not what you want to hear. But it's what Jesus taught us. He told his disciples and all those around, and many times after the large crowd were there and they got their needs met, food in their belly and hydrated up with some water, when he would come across the teaching, they would leave to the point where the disciples looked around and, and he, Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And he told them this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We live for a different kingdom. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on that name. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he goes on in John chapter 15. It's a beautiful passage about being in the vine. And he goes on and he tells them this in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it is... It is. It has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Not only was Jesus teaching about persecutions and suffering in that name, but what he was reminding us is he was the one willing to go to the cross on our behalf, having been completely abandoned by every single person to the point of death. Disfigured beyond comprehension, beyond what you would ever have seen someone. Flesh torn open, spit on, mocked. Serving us so that you and I could rejoice in that name. What joy it is that God would count us worthy to suffer for Jesus. Don't you long to hear those words spoken to you one day? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to embrace suffering that may come my way. I want you to embrace suffering that may come your way to the point where we consider it joy that God counted, looked at us and counted us worthy to suffer for his name. For those of you in school, in junior high and high school, standing up for Christ might cost you a friend or two. 
It might cost you a spot on student council. It might cost you more than you think. In the places we work, standing up for righteousness, doing what is right, clocking in when we're actually there and clocking out when we actually leave, it might cost you something. It might cost you a promotion. In all that we do, when we stand up for Christ, the cost is high, but we are to count it as a joy that God will look at us and consider us worthy to suffer for his name. And why is this? Because we look forward to the kingdom of heaven. We look forward to the return of Christ in our lives and in the life to come. Rejoicing and suffering for Christ now will one day lead to great rejoicing in his presence when he returns. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Point three, don't be ashamed. Shame is a powerful tool, isn't it? But being ashamed is sometimes equally as powerful. And I think there are times in our lives when we've taken a half step back. You've been in that situation? Maybe it was in school, maybe it was at the workplace, maybe it was um, where you go out and have recreation and play. And just to fit in, you might shy back just a little bit from standing up for Christ because you're afraid of being ashamed. Verses 14 and 15, let's read those together. They remind us about the subject of our suffering. Verses 14 and on says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Sound familiar? But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 15 makes it clear that our suffering shouldn't be connected to our sins or our misdeeds. Our suffering should be connected to that name, which is Jesus Christ. We should rather suffer because of the name of Christ and for nothing else. We suffer for Christ and not because of sin. Why? Because we are Christians. That word Christian that Peter uses, it's only found three times in the New Testament, once here, twice in Acts. Many have interpret that to mean little Christ. But other scholars think that they're wrong. And they think that means Christ follower. Someone who is following Jesus. To be a Christ follower is to embrace suffering. Following Jesus was never intended to be a walk in the park. Jesus reminds us of this in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Jesus, 
just got done telling his disciples about his death and resurrection. They couldn't quite understand it. And he comes to these verses describing that we are to live for him and him alone at all costs. He says this in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We live in a culture where denying ourselves is not a virtue. Unless you're in CrossFit and then everyone knows how much you like to deny yourself. Verse 35 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We are Christ followers. We're not Christ admirers, although it would do us good. We are not just fans of Jesus. We're not people who just think Jesus was a good teacher, a good moral teacher, a good man. We think he is the son of the living and true God. And he came to live his life and give it for you and I. This is who we believe Jesus is. Nothing else will suffice. Instead of being ashamed, we consider it such an honor to be, to bear the name of Jesus. The older I get, I love corny shirts. Like, I want that world's greatest dad shirt. I want it. I want to wear it. In public. I want people, I don't want my shirt to tell people that I'm a Christian. I want my life to tell people that I'm a Christian. We are to live our lives relying on the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus in every area of our life, including the difficult, challenging, and hard times. 1 Corinthians 10.31 breaks it down, and Paul writes to the Corinthian church, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do all of it for the glory of God. So, don't be surprised. Rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Point four, continually trust Jesus. You see, we have a problem with this, don't we? We have a problem with giving him control because it might mean that our life might look different. And he's come to say, I'm in control. And all those fiery trials that you're going through, they're not by accident. Verse 19 sums up the entire book and it points us to this. Read along with me. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to whose will? To Satan's will? To the world's will? No, to God's will. And how do we do that? By entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, the God who is faithful, the promise keeper. Verse 19 is, in, is the summary of this book, and it says, We do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. 
We suffer according to God's will. Now, that's something hard to grasp. How could God, who is loving and kind, put us through a fiery trial? But what we noticed in verse 18, it says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It doesn't mean that you're scarcely saved. What it means is with difficulty is the intent of that passage. That following Christ is a life of difficulty. And yet one day when you get it to the end of your life and your last breath on this earth is your first breath in eternity and you see God welcoming you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, you will look forward and say, all that I had to go through was worth it. Yet Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 25 that some people will get there and say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you naked and not clothe you? When did we see you hungry and not feed you? When did we see you in prison and not come visit you? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. People that sit in church, probably this Sunday morning, somewhere around this world, because Christ is not the Lord of their life. A few things to understand as we wrap this up, as I wrap this up. To continually trust in Christ and know that it's his will that he moves us through these fiery trials is to help us persevere and his spirit lives in you and God will not fail you. You may fail him, but he will not fail you. He will see you through to the end. And when it comes to this will of the Father to put us through fiery trials, to refine us, to make us into the people that he wants us to be, it is God's good and perfect will, Romans 12 reminds us. His will is good and it is perfect. It is for our good when he purifies us because he is drawing us closer to him, bringing us in. There is a limit to our refining and suffering. He won't put you past what you can't go through because he's good. And Jesus reminds us that we are never alone. You may feel alone, you may feel abandoned, but in your darkest moment, God is with you. And he will never leave you. And he's walking with you. As we finish this up, suffering has always been and always will be a part of the Christian life. There's no getting away from it. You will suffer to some extent at some point for the name of Christ. So don't be surprised. Embrace it, rejoice, trust him. As followers of Jesus, we must suffer well as we share in the sufferings just as Christ suffered. We can suffer well by entrusting our lives, all of them, by looking forward to his return. Jesus has fulfilled every promise and he said, I am coming back. And so we can willingly lay down those things in our lives for the sake of the kingdom, knowing that we're trusting him to come in return and make good on his promise. And so all that we give up in this world, it's worth it for the world to come. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed this prayer out of the Psalms. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That same word, commit, is the same word we find in 1 Peter 4.19, entrust. Father, I entrust to you my spirit. 
We could read it, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will commit their souls to a faithful creator. Why do we commit or entrust our lives? What does that mean? The word here, what it means is that we have banks. We put our money in banks. We're federally, federally protected from anything happening to the money we put in banks. Not so much back in the day. You would take your money and you would give it to someone who was faithful that you could trust when you left on a trip so that you didn't get robbed and stolen. And so you would find that friend who was faithful that you could trust and you would give them that deposit and they would guard that deposit. This is the language of Jesus entrusting God with his life that he would guard the deposit. He would guard his life and he says the same thing for us. Every day you wake up, you entrust your life God the Father. You can trust him to guard the deposit which he put in you, which is his spirit. Second Timothy 1.12, and I'm almost done. This is Paul's last letter. He is facing death every day. Death is on his doorstep. He's writing to his dear friend, brother in the Lord, mentor that he raised up. And he's writing him. This is his last letter of love to, his, to one of his friends. He says this in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Therefore, to Timothy, do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages. As we close our time in the Word this morning, I want to remind you, we can trust our lives to Christ because he trusted his life to the Father. We can put our trust, we don't put our trust in ourselves, but we put our trust in the one who is able to overcome Sin, death, and the devil. And ultimately, we put our trust in Jesus. You see, that's not just a one-time thing. That's not before Christ and you hear the gospel message and you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you know him and he's made himself revealed to you and you say, I'm going to put my faith in the work of Jesus and then I'm done. What I've learned is that my heart fails to believe that God is good all the time. Even though if I said that to you, I could say all the time and you would repeat, God is good. In our heart of hearts, we just don't always believe it, do we? We just don't always feel it. Daily is a battle and you wake up and you say, Lord, I'm putting my faith in you today. I'm putting my trust in you today. And I know that even when I fail, I can return to you. This is why Jesus says, repent and believe, because it wasn't a one-time message. It was perpetual. It was ongoing. It was continual. It was something you and I, as followers, who fail every day and stumble and pick ourselves up and have people pick our, help us get up off the ground. We put our faith and trust in the one you can save. As we walk through this life in suffering, knowing that there's a world to come. You are beloved, not because of your works, but because of the work of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, 
Lord, I needed this message for my own heart. I needed to know that you're worth it. That Jesus, you are worth every ounce of my life, every breath that I breathe. All the beauty in this world is your grace to us. Lord, your forgiveness surpasses as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, that you have promised to return and you've promised to be with us. You've promised to walk with us. You have laid it out before us to follow you no matter what. And we do this, God, entrusting our hearts to you. We know that we are loved, that we are in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to follow you in those days that are hard, in those days that are challenging, in those moments where we want to give up, in the moments we don't have the answers, when we don't understand, and when we feel alone. God, I pray that you would remind us that we are loved. For those who aren't in Christ, God, I pray that they would see how good you are and come to know you. For those of us who are in Christ, I pray, God, that we would continually put our faith and trust in you. As we continue to worship this morning, may you be honored in our lives. We ask this in your name.